listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Imposter. It's your girl Taylor here. I'm here too. And Monica's also here. And I'm on my second to last week at Headspace. I'm feeling a little bit of senioritis, <laughs> senior week. <laughs> um, and it's really hot in LA. And oh I don't yeah. really know what to do about that. Do you have um, AC? No. What? I know. I guess it's a little cooler in Santa Monica. I would, I would shrivel up here downtown. It is like, it hasn't even gotten to 80, honestly, Mm -hmm. but when it's over 70 degrees, when I'm trying to sleep, it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I'm at. Um, yeah, we have an amazing episode coming at you from another headspace alum. I love how this podcast allows us to just like keep in touch and catch up with People it does. I mean, time. Great people, great people who have great knowledge to share and are off to do great things. Truly, truly. Kaya is coming at us this week. She was my PM for a while on the monetization team. And oh, the fun that we had. <laughs> Funny for the company. <laughs> I remember Kaya interviewed me at Headspace. Um, I think everyone that interviewed me is now gone. It's crazy, but Kaya interviewed me and I was just like, this girl is so smart. And she's just, so smart. She's just like, she just oozes smartness. Um, she also has a great memory. Like at the end of, at the end of the episode, she circled back to something that you mentioned in a talk that you gave what, like six months ago. Yeah. And now, and kind of like an, almost like an anecdotal sort of thing. No, totally. Um, well, I also remembered her talk. So we both have great memories, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, no, she just like, I don't know. I just love how she just approaches her life and is so like, she's a reformed, uh, she's a reformed type A plus, as she mentions yeah. in the interview. Okay, and I feel, I feel I have a little bit of that in me too. Mm-hmm. Um, so we definitely identify on a, on a lot of aspects of just like deriving your value from your work and your work accomplishments. Um, so yeah, Kaya just has a lot of insight on being a woman in product management, imposter syndrome, um, how she kind of evolved throughout her career and highly recommend amazing. Yeah. yeah. You're going to have to listen to the rest yourselves. Yeah. All right. All right. Enjoy. Enjoy. Until a few months ago, Kaya led product growth at Headspace. As a director of product, Kaya and the team she worked with focused on increasing the number of people who signed up, paid, and stayed with Headspace. Before the last three to four years at Headspace, Kaya was a growth product manager in San Francisco at Dropbox, where she learned the foundations of subscription subscription businesses and product experimentation. Currently, she's taking time away from full-time work to write and reflect on learnings and best practices from Headspace, Dropbox and product management before diving into whatever is next. Welcome, Kaya. We're so happy to have you and so good to see you again. Thank you. I'm excited to see both of you and talk with you all about things uh, around all of these topics. For sure. So as I as I do with all of our guests, um, I usually go on like a deep uh, LinkedIn stalking session. Uh, And so obviously I did that with you and was reading just back up. I was genuinely curious. I'm always curious about how one gets into product management because unlike engineering where most people, not all people, but a lot of people come from a computer science background or take some sort of um, accelerator course at some point, there isn't really 
like a collegiate track that matches, I guess maybe there's probably some business people. Um, but you were like a bio and international studies double major. Of course, reading that I was like, of course she was a double major, of course. <laughs> um, two very difficult majors, uh, I would add. Um, and, but then you graduated and you didn't really immediately go down either of those tracks. You became president of blue lab and you were leading at you, uh, Michigan, which is where you went and you were leading this huge engineering team, um, which I don't think is something they teach in biology or, or international studies. Those weren't my majors, so I don't know. Um, but I assume that that was something that helped you to become a product uh, manager years later. So is that what you saw it too? Did you see this as kind of a step towards what you wanted to do? Um, or were you thinking that this was just sort of a fun job that you would have after college and then you were going to do something, you know, become a marine biologist like you'd always. Yeah. Been. I mean, it's funny you say the marine biologist thing, because I'm pretty sure I want it to be one at some point. Everyone, does. Everyone does at some point. Um, but yeah, Blue Lab was uh, kind of an incredible experience now that I look back on it. When I was in it, I had no idea that I was essentially learning to be a product manager in it, um, which I feel like is everything in the world where you don't really know what's happening in your life while you're going through it. But um, Blue Lab was essentially a nonprofit that was associated with the University of Michigan and our College of Engineering, but it had like 400 or 500 students in it, and each of them were broken into project teams. And if you think about how a product organization is run, it's kind of the same exact thing where there's like a product org with multiple teams under it that are working on different areas. So being the president of this organization and working on it throughout school essentially was like a boot camp into product management, but I didn't really know what product management was at the time. And I was interested in it, not because it was an engineering organization, but because they partnered with a lot of um, nonprofits and community organizations, which was more of like my international studies background and thinking through things like um, needs assessments and research and like investigating people's needs. And I found that when I was like talking to engineers in the club, a lot of them talked about it in a way that they were just like implementing a solution. They weren't thinking about like who's behind that solution or the types of um, problems that they might have or working with them to develop that solution. It was just about like the technology part of it. So the reason I was attracted to it is just because of how different it was to me that people were thinking of it from purely a technical point of view and were not thinking about like the human elements around it, which was my bread and butter coming from like an international studies background. So that's uh, how I got into something like Blue Lab, which ended up being to me, just like me being a mini, like a mini version of my product manager self kind of when I was in college. Um, but it was from there that I uh, learned also like through that experience, a lot of my time as president was spent um, looking for money, funding, um, having bake sales outside of bars at night and not going to those bars because I was like trying to get money for the student uh, organization or for different um, projects that we were working on. And um, when it got to the point of me trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and like what type of career I wanted, I knew I kind of wanted to try the exact opposite of begging for money and like trying to continue in the nonprofit world, because um, even though it was so fulfilling from a purpose standpoint, 
you were kind of just putting yourself out there all the time in terms of like, Hey, can you give me a donation? Hey, I'm not really having time to work on what I care, is, care about is important, but I need your money or uh, resources or a connection or something like that. So to me, the tech world was actually like the opposite of that, where companies like Dropbox have so much money that it's a little absurd that they can just kind of like throw that money away or be able to um, bring in people for certain amounts of time and then just like have them enjoy daily meals at that company, which was like absurd that like you can do that. So um, I wanted to kind of try that. And I told myself like, okay, hey, only do it for like a year or two. Then you can go back to the nonprofit world if it's not the best thing for you. But that's actually how, or the mentality around why I wanted to join uh, tech, the tech world and like Dropbox specifically at the time, because of it's just like rising status at the time. Isn't it just so unfortunate that, you know, those of us who are so drawn to nonprofit missions, like it's just not sustainable to stay in for that long. You have to be like a literal saint to keep going because it's just, it's just so hard. And it sucks because so many of us like really care about mission. I, I, I know all of us on this call care about, you know, the mission at whatever company we're at. And it's just so unfortunate that you know, you have, you're, you get pulled away from it at a certain point because it's just, it's. Yeah. And I also think, I mean, similar to your background, Taylor, in like teaching and stuff, like, I think when you're exposed to just parts of our community and world where there's just like so many fundamental problems and like, just like systematic, systemic type of problems that you can't really fix at the end of the day, because um, it's as a result of kind of like government or health or something else that's around. You just feel so defeated in some ways yeah. that yeah. to me, even going to Dropbox, like when I look at it backwards, it was kind of like my easier way to be an adult and like get yeah. into adulting rather than like doing it the hard, hard way, which would have been, yes, joining a nonprofit, um, making like as actually when I joined Dropbox, my salary was probably like lower than what it should have been. Um, and probably lower than what it would have been if I started a nonprofit, that's a whole different thing. Um, but, uh, I, like there's so many barriers to kind of like want to continue in that and be driven from that mission perspective, which is why um, after Dropbox, when Headspace came around and like when I joined, it felt much more like merging kind of what I loved with product management and that functional type of role, which something that had actual meaning, meaning compared to Dropbox where I think the meaning was like cloud storage or uh, mm. collaboration or something like that, where I, I really couldn't get my hands around what we were trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. You can always kind of spin it like this is the most important work because we help people store their lives in the cloud. And you're like, woo. <laughs> I know there are definitely days or calls and things where I had to kind of think of it that way. But at the end of the day, I just feel like, okay, there's so many other things happening and your problems are important, but probably not at the same scale as the other things going on. Yeah. And sometimes those companies, like what you get from those companies are the skills to then take mm-hmm. to a company where you really believe in the mission and you can apply those things. So sometimes, you know, they, they serve a different purpose, but yeah. Exactly. And that's kind of what it was for me at Dropbox where, um, I was, I started on actually a sales team at Dropbox and a lot of new grads or like people who were earlier career started on either like our sales team or our support team and did rotations through different, um, departments within Dropbox. 
And I honestly would not have traded that sales experience that I had for anything because it helped me build so much empathy for um, who our customers were at Dropbox and just understand everything and anything about questions that would come in. And I was literally like answering phone calls or chats or whatever, like talking to it, like at least a hundred people a day or so. And I just felt like um, kind of like a, someone who was maybe like a call center rep or something, which I like, I think you're ingrained in society to think of that as like not a good job or something where you can strive for more. But in this situation for me, it was exactly kind of what I needed to build my confidence to kind of like deal with customers who are really, really mad at you and voice your opinion and build up like your backbone around it, but also get where they're coming from and be able to relay that feedback to product managers or to your manager, whoever that might be. So even though I started in a sales role, I would not have traded that for anything because it really kind of taught me a lot about, again, like building empathy for customers. And because of the size of Dropbox at the time, I was able to partner with folks on um, our growth team and our product team to do um, like bait, what we call beta studies with our customers, where we would test different new features that we were thinking of or new concepts that we were thinking of. And I was always, always like the salesperson who was most interested in getting that feedback. And like, sometimes I wouldn't even hit my quota because I was just helping um, other teams with their projects. And I remember my manager was kind of like, okay, remember that's your job to like hit your quota, get your quota. Remember that we're making revenue for the company. And um, that was fun for sure to be able to like accomplish um, my quota goals, but I would always put so much into investing in relationships with our customers. And that would pay off for me over time, as opposed to just like trying to hit a sale that day or that week. I think that's, that's so true. And also something that we all three also have in common, which is that we all worked in sales before moving into more technical roles. And I a hundred percent agree. All of my professional soft skills, I learned from my first, however many years in sales and also just in, in customer facing roles. Cause I worked also in customer support. I worked uh, in operations, helping people manage campaigns, all very like, you know, you're on the front lines um, dealing with the people who are using your product and you do build so much empathy hearing their stories and wanting to help them just a single person on the phone. Um, And I think everyone should work in sales. I mean, at my first, uh, the first company that I worked at out of college in sales, living social, they used to do a swap where uh, an engineer would come. I think it was actually like required for engineers. They would have to come and sit with either an entry-level sales rep or an entry-level customer service rep and sit with them for like an hour while they would, while they would take calls. Um, and I think that there was a, I never went and sat with an engineer because I was like, oh, I'm, that's scary. Um, but I always thought that that was, really cool how they, um, enforce that. Yeah. I think that type of, um, just like cross cross team type of effort is also really important. And even at Headspace, I think we had that for a little bit too, where newer employees would shadow our CX or customer support team. Um, and that was honestly, I think some of the times where you would get the most information about pain points and be able to see how even we as Headspace try to, 
work through those with our members or customers and go from there. But I think it's important to kind of build that empathy, even if it is just like having those types of conversations, hearing pain points, hearing the frustration sometimes as well, because it just forces you to just be honestly like one, a better human, but two, like be a better advocate of your product or whatever you're trying to develop as well. I think also for, for helping seek out compromises, right? Cause a lot of times at least with the, with what we were selling, we would have to really sort of massage things for certain customers. Like maybe the split looks a little different. Maybe it's an augmented list of services that they're offering. So just figuring out like what people need and wearing to strike that balance. And I, that still is very applicable today. Um, you know, you know, very well, KO and I'd be like, "Mm, but do we need to do another variation of this experiment? Like, yeah. Yeah, that's so true. You kind of learn how to meet someone else in the middle or at least how to have that conversation in like a respectable, totally reasonable way without either of you feeling super defensive or um, just like at battle around it, which I think salespeople are really, really, really good at diffusing those types of situations and sales helps you pick up on that. And um, yeah, and I'm sure just like it helped you down the road getting buy-in from um, engineers and like all of those challenging relationships, which I think we'll probably get into later, but it's just those people skills that are so, so crucial that are not taught in a degree program. You know, if you went to school for product management, I'm sure there's some kind of degree for that. At this point, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but um, yeah, it's so funny that we all, and I know a lot of people who were in sales for their first job and I feel like it is such a, it's so crucial to building those skills. Like it's, it's really an invaluable, um, experience, but how did you, so how did you move from kind of that rotational program to, to product management? how did you know you wanted to do that? Yeah. So I actually made a pit stop first by kind of pitching my own role a little bit to my manager, Mm -hmm. because I wasn't making that I would say that transition fast enough to what I was looking for. So um, a lot of times, like you cannot become a product manager straight out of school, or it's rare to do that because they're looking for people who have um, some sort of varied experience or have like knowledge around experimentation or building up um, customer profiles or like building a product end to end. And nowadays I think it's more common or I've seen people be able to do that, but uh, like when like six years ago or so, that wasn't really the case where you could kind of just make that jump immediately. So on still within the sales team and the sales org, we got um, merged into a growth department at Dropbox. And that was really starting to think about things from a product point of view and just like a customer journey point of view. And as part of that, me being myself self was kind of like, I think there's actually things that we could do to retain our Dropbox business customers even more. And I kind of pitched to my manager and him and I worked together on this, um, how to pilot experiments around retention and getting people to retain for longer. And they were all experiments like, what if we call into the accounts on these days? Or what if we um, do that versus a control, which is not call in versus try different messaging and all this other stuff. So we were kind of doing experiments. They weren't the tech type of experiments. They weren't like bio type of experiments. There were these sales types of experiments that I was pitching that we should run. And we like the way he positioned it to me and that um, my manager and I worked together on it was, why don't we just test to see if it'll work for like a quarter? If it doesn't work, 
okay, we'll figure something out from there. And you still have your quota and everything, but if it does work, I'll help you connect more and more with like the growth team, the product team and whatever goes from there, because you'll actually learn some of those experimentation skills. So that was actually, I had like, I didn't even understand why my manager would trust me with that. I think I was like 22 or 20, like I was young at that time. I didn't really understand how they would be okay with me running this type of um, experimentation program or pilot program with people who um, indirectly and directly reported into me in some ways or the other. And like I was creating metrics and dashboards and trying to figure out if these programs would actually work. And what ended up coming out of it was that we built a couple of different new revenue streams. And also uh, I was able to work with my sales team on creating like what are experimentation best practices and how do you think about experiments from a sales point of view, not just from like a product point of view. And in working through some of that, people on the growth team started kind of noticing that I was interested in experiments, interested in like merging pain points that our sales um, our sales team was finding and what customers were having with finding solutions from them for the, from a product perspective. And that's where our growth team was looking for someone, uh, who was kind of earlier in their career, just hungry to do whatever. And they kind of started bringing me into that team. And that's kind of how I made that whole transition into being more of like a growth product manager and focusing on things relating to retention and conversion and like getting people to um, have less friction on some of those types of like conversion flows and pricing points and things like that. I just want to point out that you said like, why would my manager even think I could do this? And then you just, you just laid out like, you know, this crazy, like, like just beautiful thing that you did, like clearly clearly you had shown (laughs) that aptitude. And it's so funny how we give ourselves like such little credit for that. It's like, you're 22, but who, who cares? Like clearly you, you know, you had great intuition and, um, and I feel like, like paving your own path into product management by doing things like that is, is better. Like that, like you proved yourself, you showed, um, you showed that interest and the capacity to run those experiments and, and interest in all aspects of what a product manager does. So, yeah. Uh, I needed you at the time, Taylor, to validate that. <laughs> <laughs> because I was actually, when I was thinking about like uh, this podcast and imposter and stuff, that was probably actually one of my first career imposter mm-hmm. syndrome moments where age got to me a lot. Like yeah. I just really didn't feel qualified or competent or validated because I was younger than my peers or like we were all young kind of. And at most tech companies, you're youngish. You're in your twenties, thirties or forties. There's often not people above like 45 or 50 around or who can mentor you or who have that type of life experience. And I just felt not like a fraud, but like, I just didn't know what was happening because I'd never done it before. Even though I had skills that would definitely translate, I was definitely smart enough and competent enough. And I had a team and a manager who were all supportive as well and like, wouldn't let me fail. So you're right. It's really funny that like, that's how I thought at the time. And Mm -hmm. now when I tackle those types of moments, it's not really as scary one, because I'm older and two, because it's like, you just normally can break any problem down enough that it's no longer as much of a challenge to some extent, or you don't feel like you're making things up along the way. That's really interesting. I'd love to dive into that process a bit more for 
how you currently battle imposter syndrome. Um, especially like, it sounds like an almost kind of like technical approach, uh, which I definitely lead into like breaking down the problem. So if we can take like, um, maybe not the Dropbox one, but if you're, was there ever a time at Headspace where you had an imposter moment? Yeah. Most of honestly, like 2018 that I just had imposter syndrome that entire year to some extent. Um, and it was a result of kind of having a manager that I didn't, uh, fully see eye to eye with. And then also feeling like as a result of that, and as, as a result of what our company direction was at the time that I also didn't see eye to eye with, um, our exact team as well. And so it was a lot of me just kind of feeling like I was doubting myself or not really given entirely my voice in the same way. And the way I broke that down for myself was normally how I do it is, um, I at least try to think about what's in my control. And I know one of the things that's always in my control is just like building and maintaining solid relationships with my team or the people around me and just having people kind of trust each other and be the glue in that type of situation as a result of being a product manager. So whenever I'm going through those times, I normally lean a lot more on my teammates or my peers or the engineering manager I'm working with or the designer I'm working with and I'm transparent around, hey, I feel a lot of pressure about this experiment or project or whatever. I don't want you to feel that pressure, but if I'm being abrasive about it, like this is probably why. And these are like the different people at play and why and all the different things I'm thinking of, just so people at least know what I'm going through mentally and they know and don't take like it personally if I'm trying to like emphasize something a little bit more than I normally do, or if I am just like hangry more often (laughs) or whatever it might be during that time period. So that's normally the first thing is like really, really cement the relationships I have. And honestly, like I tend to care more about the people I'm working with and like the relationships in general over anything else like going on within a company. So that usually comes a little bit naturally to me. And then the second thing in that situation at Headspace where it just kind of didn't feel like everyone was on my side or anyone was on my side throughout a lot of that um, was that I really, really thought through, okay, one thing that I have control over is like the relationships and the people I work with. The other thing I have control over, which is very Headspace-y, is like my mindset to some extent. So the way I thought about it was instead of phrasing this as like a situation that kind of is not ideal and that I'm not really getting anything out of, how can I think of it as something that I am getting something out of? And what am I kind of learning? I'm learning a lot about like how to work with people who I don't necessarily always get along with or who aren't um, seeing eye to eye with me. And how can I reposition the types of experiments that we're doing or that I want to be doing so that they can see eye to eye with me? And in all honesty, I gave myself like a time limit around that. So I told myself, okay, if I don't feel like I'm learning and growing by reframing my mindset over the next, uh, I think I gave like myself seven months or so. And I said, if it's not happening by August, you've tried and you've given it your all. And that might be the time to think about like really talking with your manager at that time about like if there's a different role or a different team or a different um, like situation outside of headspace that might be more interesting to me. So I kind of gave it my all for like six to seven months and was like, okay, okay, just like invest in it, reframe your mindset, continue building the relationships that are important to you. And that will kind of keep you grounded and keep you 
from doubting yourself too much, hopefully. And it did end up working out for the best, but it was just like every kind of day or every other day, I had to remind myself that that's what's important to me. And how were you measuring that? You said you gave yourself a runway of like six or seven months. Were you doing checkpoints within those periods or, you know, pulling yourself, taking? Yeah. um, So I don't, I don't know if I ever told both of you about this, but I do this like weekly thing called what did Kaya do this week? Um, Yes. I I remember you presenting all of this stuff and how, when you're on planes, you do goal setting. So I want, I I want you to talk about that too. (laughs) Yeah. So that year, what the document was called would, what the hell did Kaya even do that this week? (laughs) Because it got to be a point where I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing or like what, if this is helping the business, if this is um, hurting the business. And I, I mean, I knew like my skills at the end of the day were solid, but it was just, there was a lot going on that year with not just like headspace and work, but uh, things that were going on personally and like moving my apartments and all this other stuff as well, that I just didn't really feel like I had control over what was happening at most moments. So the checkpoints that I did were essentially every week kind of checking in with like, did you actually consciously try to invest more in uh, relationships with like team members or friends or whatever? And how did you do that? And then two, uh, when you got into situations that were like really difficult, were you able to actually reframe your mindset? And if you didn't, maybe what could you do next time to try to do that? If you did, cool. How could you apply that next time? So I would, I would normally literally just write like one sentence about each of those at the end of the week, in addition to trying to think about like what else I might've done that were positive things that I did that week to kind of keep myself grounded and spend like 10 minutes on that on a Sunday before the work week started. And that would actually help me with like my Sunday scaries a little bit too. (laughs) I I feel like I'm so averse to doing things like this because I'm like, uh, like it's so forced and then, but it like you spend like a couple minutes and it can totally dramatically change your, your mindset. Like, yeah, it's like, I always thought I was kind of the same Taylor where I always thought I was like, what can like journaling or writing things down Mm -hmm. even do for you? Like it kind of just feels fluffy to some extent. Mm -hmm. And I think now for me, because I've seen it can be powerful, even when I kind of look back at like a year ago or two years ago, it's so incredible to me that I have that kind of documented or what I was thinking and going through that that kind of keeps me motivated around it. But there are definitely times where I just go through lulls and like, don't do any of that for six months and then pick up, pick it up again sometimes. And I don't, I, I feel like it's not good to be hard on yourself about it either. So if it ends up happening, cool. And I think in that, in that moment or in that time in my life, I really needed something like that because I wasn't getting the validation from like, my workplace, which honestly, I shouldn't be putting my validation on my workplace, but, um, that's what I was doing at the time. So because I wasn't getting validation in that way, I needed to get it a different way, which was like through my own recognition and self-reflection. I'm also like, I'm Taylor Moore in your camp where I I've never been able to carve out a steady, like journaling practice, but I will go through phases of bullet journaling just when I feel like I'm dealing with a lot of anxiety and I just need to kind of like brain dump all the things that are stressing me out. Um, and that sort of led to one, um, technique that I'll use to sort of combat any kind of like anticipatory anxiety. If I'm stressed about some sort of like event, um, situation coming up in my life where I'll do, I'll literally write out like best case and worst case scenarios. Um, 
and really kind of like let myself, of course, the, the worst case scenario list, like it could take up like 10 pages. Like, like the, the things that my brain, the catastrophes that my brain can come up with limitless. Um, but it's, it's good. It's good to get it out also just so that I can even check myself and be like, even I think that this is kind of ridiculous. Um, but then writing out the best case to forces me to think positively and optimistically, even if it's only for like two minutes. Um, and I think that really helps. Like, I don't, I don't do it often, but I'll do it whenever I have, you know, something in the future that I just can't stop sort of like cycling in my mind about. Yeah. I think that's actually a really good activity. And even like challenging yourself to be more glass half um, full in those types of situations where like your anxieties can kind of get the best of you is I think really important to reinforce. And that's kind of what that, like, what did Kaya do this week type of activity comes from where I'm usually not hard on myself at all. It's much more positive of my, of a mindset, because I would say I always thought I, I was like more of a glass half full type of person, but I think I, especially over the last two years have gotten much more kind of like jaded in some ways and reinforcing at least like what some of the positives are is the only way you can kind of like move forward and continue to make progress in general. Yeah. Especially if you're prone to be more critical of yourself or you just, you know, that you have those tendencies, which I definitely do as someone who also derives a lot of their value from their job and work accomplishments, which we're working on. But um, I think that really helps to just shift the mindset. It's just like call out some things. And it's, I think sometimes when you're in that, like more of a negative or cynical mindset, or maybe you're not that happy or you, you're so much less apt. You're like, I'm not doing that. Like I'm, you like want to stay in it. You know, you, you just don't, you like, don't want to do anything to help yourself. So it's, it's sounds like something that's good to just start and keep up to prevent yourself from going down that super negative spiral. That's really hard to pull yourself out of. And then you're just like burnt out and horrible to work with and rude to people. So (laughs) not saying you are, but I, I've been guilty of that. So, yeah, no. And it's all, it's kind of incredible though, too, because I mean, I've definitely gone through cycles of that before where I'm just not feeling um, like my best self in any ways. And that's totally normal, but it's more apparent to me when I am kind of going through, um, better phases of life that when I look or hear from friends who are not kind of in that same space, you can so obviously see some of the differences and you kind of just want to shake them and be like, just try to exercise, just try to go on a walk, just try to journal, just try to eat healthy or whatever it is. And like, you can't do it in those moments. It has to be someone wanting to do that combined with just like somehow them having like a decent day that day to want to do something like that. And Um, even when I think of myself in those types of positions, it's like, you have to force yourself to do it, but you really like everything in the universe is telling you don't do it. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, do you want to touch on your, like your airplane goal setting really quick? Yeah. I just think you're like, I just think you're so cool for having all, I don't know. I just think you're like this beautiful mind kind of person where you just have all these all these like, um, processes that you've developed for yourself. Like for, there are these like, I don't know, personalized, cool things where you're always like constantly evaluating yourself and not evaluating yourself, yourself, but like, you know, just, just reflecting and, and seeing if you're, if you're really doing what you, you know, if you're really happy doing what you're doing. So 
yeah so yeah so I so outside of that thing that I do on Sundays for like 10 minutes to just try to capture like what I did the last week and some positives out of it I found that I didn't always do that every Sunday or like drop off the boat on it and stuff and I've always found people who journal to be so impressive, especially when I was younger. And I was like, oh, wow, my mom like did all these journals or my, I don't know, like you see them in movies and stuff too, but no one actually does that. <laughs> like it, just, <laughs> it doesn't seem like people actually have the time to do that. And I told myself, wouldn't it be cool if at least I kept like a travel journal to some extent. So after I graduated from school was when I started that kind of tradition where anytime I travel, I journal. And at first it was really oriented around the travel and like what I was excited about with the travel or where I was going because travel is usually a um, exciting type of situation or sad if you're like going away from home or whatever it might be, but it's usually a situation where you feel a lot of emotion. And what that evolved to pretty quickly is me just in my journal, um, thinking more about like where I am in life in those moments and reflecting from there. So normally with each of the kind of like travel journals that I do, it kind of goes through like my highlights and my lowlights of what are happening in my life at that moment. And my previous entry or update could have been the last time I traveled a week ago, or right now it's like the last time I traveled a year ago. So it's kind of impressive to see, or not impressive, but it's just like cool to kind of see that evolution over time. And more recently, after I left Headspace, I looked at one of my previous ones from a long time ago when I was like a type A plus personality. I would say I'm like a type A personality right now, but I was probably even more so before. And um, there I like mapped out what like my five-year plan was, which is so like that's the type of person I was where I needed to kind of have an idea of like, this is option A and B and C. And that's what my travel journal looked like at the time. And then more recently, when I've looked at that, I kind of just like reflect on what my options were there. And I was like, okay, how absurd were you that you mapped out five pages and took up five pages to do that when like right now you don't even know what you're doing next week. Um, So it's even kind of things like that, where I just like reflect on how proud I am to not be anywhere close to what I was before or um, think about in general, what's going on my life as a result of being on that road trip or being on that plane or wherever it might be. That's some serious growth. <laughs> I know going from that to now being fun employed a little bit. <laughs> but it's cool. Like, I think you really like that, that type of mindset of reflecting on where you're at has, a, has played a part in changing like some of those behaviors that maybe weren't serving you as well. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. And I mean, this is obviously my own bias, but I actually, uh, whenever I interview people, so like at, when I interviewed at Headspace or at Dropbox or whatever, one of the things that was most important for me to interview and test for or feed out was people's self-awareness. And it does not mean that they have to journal or they have to like reflect in that way, but it's more about like, if you ask a question and they don't even think about like what they would have done differently or how they might have harmed something or um, looking back, what was actually, was that actually the right way to do things or not? Like if they're not even, if they're not getting to that level of awareness then at least a couple of questions, it shows me that they might not have like that full appetite to grow and learn from themselves and people around them. So that was actually a really important trait that I was looking for, especially in like people that I would eventually manage. Um, if not like my peers, that would be on my team with me in terms of that self-awareness trait. That's so cool. I've definitely 
written out like five year like goals for myself too, but certainly not to that <laughs> extent. But it's interesting because I too found that I did it. I did it much more when I was younger, like in my early mid twenties. And now, you know, at the ripe old age of 32, I'm sitting like, I don't want to think about myself five years from now. That's no, that's too close to 40. Goodness. I'm on the same page, Monica, but I also think it's similar to what Taylor and I were talking about before, where it's, I think when you're younger and especially with our school systems in the U S you're ingrained to think about work and productivity and success. And that's the norm, like as a result of going to high school or getting an education, going to college and having like a path around that. So to me, it's not surprising that I had these like five-year plans and these different options for them, because that's honestly what we're kind of thought is success. And then it's only through some time that you realize wait, you cannot get your happiness from work and, or like from one person or from a specific thing. It's more about how you find meaning in your own way. And that's so difficult for people to know and realize unless they've gone through it before, they've gone through some level of hardship in some way or the other. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. I feel like we could have an entire podcast just on that topic, but yeah, you know, it's your productivity does not equal your worth. And I have such a hard time. Like I, I can say it and I know it's true, but to actually internalize that is so, so much more difficult to think like I, I can be and happy, a happy, non-anxious person, even if I don't get done all of the things on my to-do list today. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think, I mean, this is generalizing a little bit, but I also think sometimes um, women have even difficult abilities to internalize that and understand that just because of so many additional responsibilities that they Mm -hmm. have um, in thinking about like right now with me kind of like being with my family more and stuff and thinking about caring for them or um, with like meals or with whatever you might be doing that maybe if you're in a like kind of traditional heterosexual relationship, you're not gonna, like, there's so many gender expectations that are put on different people that um, women sometimes, or people who identify as women have to deal with that so much more in terms of their, their uh, work equals like validation or work equals success type of mindset. Yeah. Because your work is also like, you know, your childbearing abilities and that how, tidy you keep your house like it applies to everything um but I mean to pivot a little bit but speaking of women I I did want to ask you more about like what the breakdown of women looks like in the product world because we know in engineering it it heavily skews male um and I I think that that's also still true for for products too is that what you found Yeah, it definitely still skews more towards men being in product roles, but I would say it's definitely better than I think in engineering or like DevOps or traditional types of like more tech roles, um, which I appreciate and it's gotten a lot better at in general. But uh, I do think overall women can have a more difficult time in the product world. And that's mostly because 
there have been so many more men established in product roles over years and years of like however long the tech world has been around, like 30 years or so. And they have networks or access to networks and resources and whatnot that I think a lot of women just don't have access to in the product world unless they also have people that they can kind of look to or really good managers that um, can help them throughout that process. So one thing that I usually think about is within the product world, something that's unique about product managers is just your visibility that you have to the exact team and leadership team and people making decisions at the end of the day. And that's different than other functional roles. So I think sometimes like engineering managers or tech leads or even engineers themselves get that type of visibility and same with designers or researchers or whatever. But with product managers, that's literally part of your job. Like it's on every job description that you're interfacing with the exact team or leadership team and trying to like convince them one way or the other or like sneakily trying to incept your idea with them or whatever it might be. So because a product manager's role is so tied to like that strategy and company direction, um, a lot of times when you actually look around, you'll see the leadership team is still mostly white men and it's not one women as often as you'd like and two um, like people of color. And as a result of that, being a woman in those types of spaces, you can still be successful and effective, but a lot of times subliminally, it's probably affecting the conversations in one way or the other, in that they already, other people in the room already have like their jokes or their like background of coming from the same university or whatever it might be. And no matter how many times like I can break into that because I went to the same university, it's just not the same in terms of how to explain the situation. So I know I've definitely done things like um, go the extra mile to like follow up with execs on the side or like really, really over prepare for things compared to some of my peers who are product managers who are guys. And that was for me to kind of overcompensate and feel totally adequate and prepared. And like, I'm totally equipped just as much as like the guy product manager who's next to me. And I think it's definitely getting better and better or like with a lot of the hiring decisions that I made. I had an extreme bias towards women um, that I brought on, brought in and brought on to the teams um, that I manage. But, and I think in general, like the product world is getting better and better on that. So there, there, there are like women in product um, Facebook groups that have been hugely helpful to me and a lot of my friends. And even now I check in with like my product management friends who are women quite a bit more as a lot of them are making decisions around like kids and finances and maybe like getting into partnerships and stuff like that and thinking of how they consider their careers in addition to their identity and being a woman and just having those types of sounding boards is really helpful to me personally. Yeah, thinking about just the whole boys club of that exec team, like it doesn't really matter how many women we get into product because they're going to be running up against those types of environments and those types of rooms where it's often the loudest person that that has the say or gets gets their way. But I think what you were saying about how you know one of your techniques is just building relationships and it's it, it clearly um, you kind of were applying that same thing here by following up with execs separately. And I think it may take it may take like you were saying a little bit extra work um, by you then maybe some of your male counterparts, but, um, isolating people and not like getting out of that big room experience yeah. where like, where someone can win the room 
Like you kind of have to slowly, like you said, incept your ideas into different people. So when you get in the room, everyone already kind of has that, has that idea planted. Yeah, exactly. The only thing with that though, which is still like, is really frustrating to me though, is that I see that other people don't have to do that. So I have to do that on the side or go through Slack conversations on the side or like meet people and bump into them coincidentally. Like why that might be like my best way of meeting people and cornering them onto my side is like one-on-one conversations, (laughs) but why, like, why does it have to be that way in some ways or the other? Because, um, a room is dominant by like certain voices or because it's like all kind of people aligning and like getting into group think. And that's not just a problem with like leadership teams and stuff, but it's also a problem of like bringing too many people into a conversation and like a room being the decision-making factor versus like making a decision asynchronously and all this other stuff. But I definitely like hear where you're coming to because it's just like that sometimes works. And if that's what works, it's okay to like, keep doing that and relying on that. If that's what I'm good at. Yeah. But it does suck. It's like, clearly you have to do more work and you have other work to do, like then have these little sneaky conversations (laughs) in the hallways. So, but yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we're hoping that, hoping that men in those rooms are starting to learn that leaning, leaning back, leaning out of the conversations while we can lean in Cheryl Sandberg. Um, is, is kind of the way to go, but, uh, we definitely have a lot of, a lot of room for growth. Yeah, exactly. And I will say like the, in the situations where I've been, so I I was counting in, in like thinking of this podcast, I was counting like how many managers I've had and I've had like 10 or 12 of them. Only one of them has been a woman. Mm -hmm. So say like 10 or 11 of them have been men. And what I've found that works for me personally is being really, really upfront about like what my goals are and like where I want to be in six months or a year and what I'm interested in, because that at least gets them to see, sure, like maybe I don't, maybe with a, with a like guy who's reporting to me, it's easier to share my network or share like, I don't know, things over beers or whatever it might be. But at least with her, I know very clearly what she wants and where she's going. And if she doesn't get that, she's probably leaving. So with that type of being transparent on my side, it just makes it easier for my manager then to at least support me in those ways or advocate for me, knowing that like, they know I want to work with finance on this project. So like, who do they know in finance that they can help with if it's not someone at my immediate company or whatever. Um, And that kind of helps in terms of me being pretty clear upfront about what I want. But it's also like, again, that shouldn't be on me to have to do, but um, it's just, it's still something that I've found at least sets me up for success a little better. Yeah. It almost makes it, it almost changes the relationship to be more of a mentorship then when you're telling them, you know, here's where I want to be and here's what I need from you to help me get there. I imagine that I would hope um, that the manager then would be able to give you more targeted feedback that will, you know, help push you in the right direction to make sure like it, it really should be more. And ideally that should be the way all manager relationships are where it's more of like a partnership. Um, they're helping you. And in turn, you know, you're helping them by meeting your goals and yeah. being a good direct report and then giving them good feedback on their uh, management style in general. Yeah, exactly. And I found though that like doing it that way helps a little bit with um, like both sides of the relationship to some Mm -hmm. extent where a manager doesn't have to feel as much pressure to like 
have a successful person that they're managing or whatever, because they know what success to me looks like. And I know what success to them looks like. And we just kind of merge those together more and more. Well, Kaya, you're a wealth, wealth of knowledge. So are both of you. I've loved my gosh. No, we're flies on the wall while you're telling us how to do all of this, like advanced journaling technique. No, I just send over some prompts after this. <laughs> no, I'm I can't promise that I'll use them, but I would. <laughs> no, I don't even strikes. Prompts. <laughs> I buy. I can't even tell you how many journals I've bought and planners. Bought that really I, fancy planner last year. I like just like oh. want to be a planner person so badly, and I can't do it. I, no, I journal. I not, it does not yeah. make sense to force yeah. it. Like it's no. just better to look at the planner than not to yeah. use it. I, I journal in times of distress for yep. sure. Like what you were talking about, Monica. Just get the thoughts down. Yeah. But if I'm not in some like acute stress situation, I'm like, la la la, like time to go watch Real Housewives. Like I just don't care about reflecting, but it, it just puts you in a better, it's, I think it, any kind of reflecting like on, on a regular cadence just, just helps you, you know, it, you don't get somewhere in six months and be like, what have I been doing the past six months? You know, Mm -hmm. like you just have this awareness. Yeah. Um, and you don't get stuck in situations that don't serve you for long. So it's definitely something I need to yeah. implement. Maybe I, mean, part- I think we all kind of need our own space though, to just like yeah. decompress at the end of the work day or end of yeah. week, stuff like that. So like going through cycles of that is totally fine. I think, or that's what I tell myself when I don't want to do things. Yeah. I think I have an opportunity to set up some new, um, new habits starting a new job so we'll see maybe i'll maybe i'll be able to do that and keep are you still gonna be in la then yeah it's fully remote oh nice that's kind of yeah so you can fully embrace kind of where the last year has been and then be able to shape it in your way exactly yeah and a lot of stuff we were talking about of just like work-life balance like i think we're actually knowing that i'm gonna be remote forever i'm like wow it makes it much easier yeah, yeah to actually know that and like be set up mentally like that yeah but I remember oh. when you did the um women in tech talk that like Jasmine helped facilitate you talked about how you would like try to consciously do walks during the day and breaks mm-hmm. and stuff like that so it feels like you were at least able to make like some healthy boundaries that hopefully yeah. you can continue on yeah I totally have like I figured it out for sure okay. while we've been here and I moved now I'm closer to Santa Monica where I can just walk oh, to the yeah. uh, like the beach trail so that helped getting just that kind of nature in and bookending yeah. the day in the morning like I do something before I come straight to the yeah. computer so I can figure it out but yeah, um, but yeah it's crazy I, I just I like that I can work for a Silicon Valley tech company without living there yeah, I love um, it. yeah. so that's that's something I'm excited about but yeah, yeah. that's awesome though yeah Well, thank you so much, Kaya. Thank you both.